A friend of mine who also practices medical acupuncture said to me, Bill, why is it that the population of China is over 1.3 billion, and Chinese medicine has been around for over 2,500 years, opposed to Western medicine, which has been around for less than 200 years, and yet they call us the alternative? For an answer to this riddle, stay tuned to this special segment on healthcare education on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. Kathy Kemper. Dr. Kemper is the Carol J. Guth Chair for Holistic and Integrative Medicine and a professor of pediatrics, public health sciences, family and community medicine at the Wake Forest University School of Medicine in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Today we are discussing integration of complementary and holistic medicine into a physician's education. Hi, Dr. Kemper. And thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us today at the Clinician's Roundtable. Hi, Bill. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. How did you become interested in integrative medicine? What was your passion that moved you there? (laughs) A better question would be, what got me into mainstream medicine? I was actually interested in meditation from the time I was a teenager and was planning to study psychology in college because I was so interested in the relationship between stress, illness, and wellness. And some of my college friends convinced me that if I was interested in that, I had to go to medical school. So reluctantly, I agreed to go. And about my third year of medical school, I saw somebody resuscitated using epinephrine, and I realized there might be something to this Western medicine after all. Hopefully they were successful. It was successful, yes. How hard was it for you to convince your mainstream friends at the American Academy of Pediatrics to recognize Chim as worthy of section status? We still haven't been fully recognized for full section status, but it was very easy to convince them to allow us to start the provisional section, much easier than I had anticipated. I'd been a member of the Academy for many years and had always been somewhat intimidated by the size of the organization since it um, has over 60,000 members. But people were very receptive and very helpful in getting through the paperwork, and the process so far looks very promising for us to become full section by July. Do you have to be a member of the American Academy of Pediatrics to access the information available through the subsection? In other words, can a practicing physician who wants to learn something about complementary medicine somehow participate with the section or the subsection? That's a great question, Bill. You have to be a member of the American Academy of Pediatrics at this point to be a member of our listserv. However, you can go to the Academy website and look under sections and find the material from our section there, which contains references that Dr. Larry Rosen has put together, information about research and different programs that Dr. Sunita Vora has put together. The newsletter is posted there. And I should also mention that Dr. Rosen has a wonderful listserv through Pediatric Integrative Medicine that you don't have to be a member of the American Academy of Pediatrics to be a member of that. If you just Google Pediatric Integrative Medicine, you will find Dr. Rosen, Dr. Larry Rosen in New Jersey, and he has a great listserv through Yahoo that there's a lot of postings on, and it's a terrific resource for clinicians because almost every day there's a posting of, I have a patient who wants to use such and such herb, what do you think about that? Or I have a patient with Crohn's disease and they want to know if gluten makes that worse and somebody, there'll be a gastroenterologist on within a short period of time or a nephrologist or a Reiki master or, you know, there's just an unbelievable number of resources available through that. My problem with all those things always is that, is it opinion of the individual or is it fact? And that's why, you know, my interest is beginning or learning more about what's available in a more formalistic educational setting for physicians who want to learn about 
complementary alternative integrative medicine. Is there a program that you've started at Wake Forest that somebody could access, or what are good sources of, of learning? There are a number of great resources, certainly more than there were 25 years ago. For example, the American Academy of Pediatrics just had on their Pedialink program a hot topic on natural remedies for colds. So you could get CME credit for taking that online course. The American Academy of Pediatrics also sponsors a number of sessions at the spring meetings and at the fall meetings that are on topics related to integrative medicine. So, for example, the joint meeting with the pediatric societies this spring has an entire three-hour session on integrative approach to promoting mental health. In the fall, there are other programs going on, and there's scientific data about things that, you know, are on that borderline. Sometimes we think of them as complementary, and now they're becoming mainstream, like probiotics and vitamin D used to be complementary, and now they're very much moving into the mainstream, and those are covered a lot in these American Academy of Pediatrics programs. The other terrific resource, I think, is the University of Arizona program. That's with Andrew Weil? That is with Andrew Weil, and there's an in-person fellowship training there, and then there's a a sort of distance learning where you come and learn some things that you can really only learn hands-on. They are also developing, in conjunction with some of the other programs in the Consortium of Academic Health Centers for Integrative Medicine, online training for family medicine residents. So during residency, people will be able to take several hundred hours of training on areas from herbs and dietary supplements to mind-body training. This is part of the residency program then in family medicine? There's, I think, 10 pilot programs in family medicine that will be testing this out, and then it will be available more widely. But this is becoming more commonplace in programs that sponsored by the American Academy of Family Practice and the American Academy of Pediatrics. It's just moving more and more into the mainstream. The Medscape provider of continuing medical education has had several programs on natural approaches to ADHD and natural approaches to depression, and uh, we're about to do one with them on natural approaches to headache. So there's just more and more things available, both in person and online. I'd like to welcome those who are just joining us at the Clinician's Roundtable to a special segment on healthcare education on ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and I'm speaking with Dr. Kathy Kemper, and we're discussing gaining an education in complementary, holistic, integrative medicine. Why is it so important that doctors incorporate integrative medicine into their practices? There are several reasons it's important for physicians to incorporate this into their practices. Selfishly, I would say one reason that's really important is so that we can take better care of ourselves, so we can be available to provide care to others. Unless we learn how to eat right, make time to exercise, learn how to manage our own stress, we're not going to be very effective in taking care of our patients, and we won't be the most optimal family members either. So taking care of ourselves, I think, is really important. And then secondly, probably more important from the patient's point of view, is that patients are really interested in what they can do for their own health. Over the last 30 years, there's been a tremendous number of movements socially for individual empowerment. And as people have sought more information, they want reliable information about what they can do to promote their own health. And so I would like to see physicians maintain the position of being able to advise patients about that. How many people are using CAM modalities? And I understand they're spending a lot of money out of their own pockets to do this. People are spending a lot of money, and it depends on how you define CAM or integrative medicine. 
if you include prayer, it's probably 90% of people. If you include multivitamins, it's well over 60% of people. If you exclude both prayer and multivitamins, it's probably on the neighborhood of about 40% of people. It's higher rates in people who have chronic or recurrent illnesses and lower rates in young, healthy people. Have you found, I certainly have, that doctors are reluctant to ask people about things that they themselves don't if you want to say believe in. I mean, why is it so hard and it's so important to ask patients what complementary modalities they might be using? Well, nobody likes to look stupid. Physicians particularly don't like to look stupid, and we also don't like to open a can of worms. You know, we're under tremendous time pressures nowadays, and it is much faster to write a prescription than to teach somebody a mind-body management skill. Or order a test. Yeah, it's also very quick to order a test. So people tend to be driven by their circumstances, and if you're in a circumstance where you have to see 40 patients a day and you've got a nice drug rep bringing you lunch, that's what's going to come to mind. So I think for many people, they have to have a life-changing experience before they begin to look at other options. Did you have one? Is that when you, you mentioned you got into meditation, you were very interested in meditation. Was there a life-changing experience for you that brought you to this point? In terms of why I got interested in meditation? Yes. Uh, I was a teenager and I was experimenting with all kinds of different things. And I, I guess part of it probably was the fact that my parents were going through a divorce and I was interested in stress management. So yeah, that's probably it. There's got to be a practical way of teaching people. I mean, to me, the mind-body connection is so obvious. But yet there must be something, be it using heart rate monitors or galvanic skin response that you could show to people that when you're upset, when you're anxious, you do get headaches, you do get abdominal pain. They're real. How do we bring that into the medical education process so that medical students can come out being believers? Well, I think it's a very good opportunity to learn during physiology training in the first year of medical school. And that's what they're doing at Georgetown, which is, I think, a brilliant move by Dr. Adi Haramadi at Georgetown to introduce stress management training in conjunction with basic physiology. Yes, when we are stressed, we have sympathetic discharge, we have cortisol, we have epinephrine, we have norepinephrine, we have increased heart rate, we have all kinds of things going on. And, you know, the biggest supplier, the biggest amount of serotonin in the body is not in the brain, it's in the gut. So I think when people learn those basic physiology facts, they can very quickly see the relationship between mind and body. The mind doesn't stop at the neck, and the body doesn't stop at the neck either. And they're very definitely connected. The same receptors that are on nerve cells are also on immune cells and gut cells and all over the place. And there's vitamin D receptors all over the body. So the more we know, the more we learn, the more sense this mind-body connection makes. Well, for those that are interested in the scientific approach, I actually have this two-volume text on my shelf, and someday maybe I'll read it when I'm retired, but it's called Psychoneuroendocrinology. And as I begin to work my way through it, it's absolutely fascinating and excellent reading for those that you know feel it's better if it's in a scientific textbook. <laughs> absolutely. There have got to be times when parents come to you with a treatment program that's been outlined for them. Do you ever feel like Maybe they're going in the wrong direction. I mean, are there some therapies that people come to you about or come to you talking about and you say, you know, let's not go in that direction? Boy, that's a big challenge, you know, and it can work a couple of different ways. I saw somebody yesterday who had severe recurrent abdominal pain, and her physician was frustrated with not being able to take care of it and sent her to a psychiatrist who started her on an antidepressant medication for her anxiety. 
And when I talked to her, she didn't really seem to be anxious to me at all. And I was really stuck with trying to not disparage what the psychiatrist had recommended, but I also really didn't agree with it. She didn't seem depressed or anxious to me, and fortunately, her mom called me today and told me the gastroenterologist told me she had Crohn's disease. So, you know, there's this stopping medications that may not be useful or indicated. And then on the other hand, there are people who bring me bagfuls of what looks like dirt, and they say, you know, that somebody recommended that they should put a teaspoon of this in water and drink it three times a day. And That I find even more problematic because generally the person who's recommended it has even less training. I'd like to thank Dr. Kathy Kemper, who's been our guest, and we've been discussing the importance of educating doctors in complementary, holistic, and integrative medicine. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions. Please visit us at ReachMD.com and explore our on-demand and podcast features, which gives you access to our entire program library. Until next time, I wish you good day and good health.